But we know we've had two of our interpreters killed, a substantial number beaten very badly. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to take I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to swallow up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Glenn Kolomitz is a veteran of the Royal Australian Air Force and the Australian Army. Among other roles, he's been an MP and deployed to Afghanistan as a legal officer, working to enable special forces on their missions. He was originally interviewed by Angus Horden in Season 2 of the podcast. In number 22, Glenn Kolomitz. That threat group never stabilised after that. So that was a very active threat group in our province after we took the head of the snake off the leader, that threat group never stabilised to the point of getting good leadership again, so it wilted away and died on the vine. Glenn came back on the show today to speak with Angus about the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, one year on, and the work that Glenn continues to do in the veterans community. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm joined today again with our friend Glenn Kolomitz. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Angus. Glenn, it's almost a year now since the fall of Kabul, and having served over in the region before, we thought we'd like to talk to you again and gain your perspective as to how you've seen the collapse of things, how the authorities are handling all the various parts of that equation and the repercussions that you've been seeing and indeed are helping with today. Well, I think the fall of, uh, of Kabul and indeed Afghanistan was inevitable once um, the writing was on the wall, right? Once, uh, once Western forces started pulling out and certainly once the Australian embassy in Kabul was closed. The fallout in, in our regard, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the Taliban government and, and look, they are, for all intents and purposes, the government, not handling the country particularly well. We see, we're seeing that in the aftermath of this recent earthquake. But from our perspective, uh, we've been we've been working on um, the Afghan refugee, Afghan locally engaged employee refugee cases, uh, getting Afghans who work for Australia out of Afghanistan and getting them visas to Australia. Since the fall, we've managed to get three and a half thousand of our clients out, which which is a fairly remarkable number. But we still have about um, a thousand or so there, um, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to get them firstly evacuated, but secondly, to get them visas to Australia. Glenn, it's sort of beggars belief that I think everyone was aware that Australia and indeed the Allies would pull out eventually. And knowing that, you would have thought it would have been easier to sort of organise this when we still had the boots on the ground, so to speak, rather than sort of trying to hurry things out at the last minute. Yeah, Mate, you're right. The, um, the locally engaged employee program was in place since Iraq. I and mean, indeed, it worked. It worked quite well um, post-Iraq. But um, we, we, many of our people had been applying for certification through Defence or through DFAT uh, as locally engaged employees for years, for years. And uh, they'd received nothing. The process was very, very slow. And, uh, 
and I have to say, very few were getting certified right up until the Taliban were advancing on Kabul. And I think under pressure from organisations like ours and many veteran groups, um, the, the government started issuing these um, short-term emergency visas to locally engaged employ Afghan employees um, instead of clearing them as, as locally engaged employees. So, so you're right, the process could have been done over those years leading up to the fall of Kabul instead of um, what appeared to be at the last, at the last minute. I think for non-military people, Glenn, perhaps you could help us by saying, I mean, you were over there and you were working with the locals. I mean, how much of an input and value were these locals in helping you with your operations? Oh, look, absolutely essential. Um, firstly, the interpreters, uh, which is I had my own interpreter when I was in Afghanistan, and uh, and all of the, the force elements, the infantry units, et cetera, had their interpreters. Um, essential. You, you can't conduct operations of that nature, particularly counterinsurgency operations, without uh, interpreters working on the ground with you to, as, you know, as the name suggests, interpret, um, but also to give um, give some sort of cultural guidance. So, you know, in terms of the military on the ground, essential. But other groups like the um, the Afghan embassy guards guarding the Australian embassy in Kabul, that that was an essential service to to keep our Australian um, diplomatic and consular staff safe, and Afghans who. Um, worked on AusAid projects uh, funded by Australia, such as the wheat and grain people, replacing the pop opium poppy with wheat and grain in some of the, in the province. Um, those sorts of projects are entirely a crit were critical to the work Australia was doing in Afghanistan. Glenn, despite what the Taliban have said, their actions would reflect otherwise. Can you share with us what you would expect to have fallen into the hands of the Taliban, these people, that what would have happened, you know, when they actually caught up with these guys? Mate, we know we've had two of our interpreters killed, a substantial number beaten very badly. Almost all of them have been in hiding or moving from house to house, uh, you know, receiving what they call night letters, letters saying, you know, stuck to their door saying, we know you work for Australia, we're going to come and kill you. That was that's a fairly prevalent um, scenario. So they've all faced direct threats without fail because of their work with Australian agencies. Can you specifically give us an example about how you're helping these people get out of Afghanistan? Uh, the first thing was trying to get them certification as locally engaged employees to then open the door to visas, but um, then just getting them visas, getting them visas to Australia or under whatever class, you know, emergency visas or more permanent visas, it, doesn't, it didn't matter, just get them a visa to Australia, but then helping to facilitate evacuation. So we've been working with Dr. Kay Danes, who is a, a human rights law expert, and um, Dr. Kay has worked in embassies in the Middle East, and she, um, she facilitated contact on the ground with the heads of mission in certain neighbouring countries, I won't get into too much detail, who we, we would then um, help facilitate uh, the movement of our people to the border of these particular countries and get them, help them get their documentation and then get them across with the help of consular staff. So, um, you know, a lot of moving pieces there. But, uh, you know, my, as a lawyer, my big one was the visa situation, but that, that, was, that worked hand in hand with the, um, with the physical evacuation. And, Glenn, could you vouch with regard to the quality of these people from the perspective that, they are trained, educated, can speak English, assimilate well with Australians. Would I be correct in saying that they're probably quite good people to bring over here? Absolutely. I'll give you a couple of examples, mate. Um, we, have, we have a cluster of um, Afghan families in Newcastle, all interpreter families who worked with the ADF. English is, is impeccable. 
Um, they've they've dug themselves into the community in in Newcastle um, to the point that I was up there having um, having chai with them some time back. We were in a park with the, with they and their kids, and uh, some group of local surfies walked past and yelled out, "G'day, John!" to to one of the Afghans, right? So so they're part of the community, um, and they're bringing this not just the language skills, but they they're doing a lot, lot of the a lot of these jobs that that um, Australian industry is finding hard to hard to fill. Another group, the second example, is these wheat and grain experts who we're trying to bring out, uh, trying to get visas for right now. They helped us, helped AusAid, shut down the poppy, um, the, the opium poppy cultivation, and replace it with wheat and grain crops in uh, in our in, in our area of operations. We need to get them out because they're under an immediate threat. But they they bring these these tertiary um, specialist skills in wheat and grain cultivation in arid regions to the table, which we need in this country. They all speak impeccable English. They're all highly educated. They've all done a good job for us in Australia and they face the threat because of that. We, that we, it's not just about saving their lives, it's about bringing these, these skill sets to Australia that we need. And also with respect, you know, the Australian government, you know, through their funding in the military operations and the funding over there of the interpreters have invested money in these people, you know, to train them our way. I mean, it would just see they're very good assets and for a whole bunch of really moral reasons they should be brought home. You look at this, and, and we haven't even touched on how the Americans, I mean, Biden in particular, hurried their evacuation. Would I be wrong in, in saying that I will remember the photographs in Vietnam of the helicopters leaving the embassy roof to evacuate the American staff at the end, and, and yet did we not see a very similar thing in Afghanistan? Absolutely, we did. And I think we saw images of Afghans clinging to the undercarriage of aircraft or crawling on the fuselage, etc. Having said that, though, the Americans were very helpful in the very early days of the, of the fall of Kabul, getting some of our people out. Um, very helpful. We had a family, an interpreter family, who's the rest of their family are in Australia now. This interpreter family got into the airport and wanted to get onto an Australian flight. A, a DFAT staffer told them to leave the airport. So... Um, so I was, I was talking to them and I said, well, no, take take this letter, I got a lawyer letter from me up to the first American you see and asked to get in the US flight. So they did. And they were flown um, to Dubai initially and we asked DPAD to pick them up in Dubai. They didn't. So they were then flown to Germany uh, and then to um, Texas. They're now in a refugee camp in Texas. Now, this is a family, an interpreter family, like the interpreter and two, two interpreters and their immediate families who have the rest of their family already in Australia, who are also interpreters. Um, and in fact, one of their brothers, who was an interpreter, was killed alongside three Australian soldiers in that blue on green situation at the patrol base near Shawali Cot. So this family, this Amiri family, I can use their name, we, we owe them a lot. Their son died working alongside our guys, died alongside our guys. Um, they are interpreter families. The rest of their family are here, yet they're, they're, um, they're languishing in a refugee camp in Texas. Thankfully, as I say, I'm grateful that the Americans got them out um, because they would have been at enormous risk. They were high profile because of the fact that their, their, you know, their family member died uh, working with us. But we want them here. They deserve to be here. Glenn, could I ask, this is very important and very detailed work you're doing. Do you get paid for it? No, this is almost all pro bono, mate. Um, We've, I think we've had two paying briefs. Our, our mandate is it's pro bono for, for Lees, so for locally engaged employees, interpreters and others who work for us. We've taken on a couple of cases for people who are outside our mandate, who we've helped to, to secure visas for, and we've, we've charged them fees because they're outside our scope. But 
the work for the Lees is all is all being pro bono. So I'm very grateful to uh, to Gap Veteran and Legal Services to the executive directors for allowing us to do that. To be honest, that just speaks volumes about you again, mate, Glenn. Perhaps we could leave Kabul and sort of you know jump around as we as you and I often do. You've been having a chat with Ken's radio and media about mm. the situation in the Ukraine. So we'll go from one disastrous point to another. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about what's happening with your discussions with Cairns Media? Look, two or three times a week, I get on Radio 2CA Cairns with John McKenzie, who is a very well-known journalist in, in North Queensland, very, very articulate, very intelligent man. And I, I bring to bear my postgraduate defence and strategic studies, my 30-odd years' experience in defence, and my various officer training continuum courses. So, you know, your staff officer type courses to do a strategic analysis, to trawl through the media, do a strategic analysis of what's going on in, in Ukraine and let the, um, and give that to, uh, to the 2CA listeners uh, in these short pieces a couple of times, two or three times a week. So it's a, it's a bit, uh, maybe outside my legal mandate, but it's, uh, as I say, you, you bring the skills to bear and it's, uh, it sort of helps the community up there get across the, what is a very complex issue. Can we jump to another subject? Um, I'm aware that right now you are deeply working on your PhD with regard to command responsibility and war crimes, which of course is a very topical issue. Could you tell us a bit about this huge amount of work in addition to all the other things that you're doing? Yes, mate. Well, I just today I reached 87,482 words. I'm just reading it off the screen now. Um, I love the colour bit there, of course. But look, it's a it's a deep dive um, doctorate, a PhD, into um, the way Australia has incorporated command responsibility for war crimes. So the responsibility of the chain of command for the war crimes of subordinates into Australian law, and it's through the University of Adelaide. And my supervisors are both um, a couple of amazing um, naval officers, Captain uh, Dale Stevens and Lieutenant Commander Matthew Stubbs, both sharp as attack lawyers and outstanding naval officers. This is really exposing some gaps in the legislation in Australia. Um, it's, so it's, it's being done from a policy perspective, right, to help fill these gaps so we can properly comply with our international obligations. But it's also exposed a few, um, it's opened a few wounds, I think, in terms of the way recent inquiries have approached, uh, you know, responsibility for war crimes in this country. So, um, like I say, it's, a, it's, quite a, it's quite a fascinating almost multidisciplinary piece of research because it goes into command and control, et cetera, as well, and not just pure law, which is why I hope to also publish it in, you know, in a book at some stage once, once the thesis is examined. Mm. So, Glenn, besides you doing this extensive work, what is the purpose of, you know, of this work? Is, is it to sort of to go to government to assist them in perhaps improving the way they're doing this? Well, ideally, yes, I, I, I believe, and I think my research has, has uh, borne this out, I believe the way we've enacted command responsibility into Australian law, so the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court provisions into Australian law is, is flawed and leaves some gaps which reputationally and legally Australia could, uh, could, could be detrimented by. So uh, as, as a policy piece, I, I would like government to re... Once, once my thesis is, uh, is, is examined, I'd like government to revisit this from, through that policy lens and uh, make sure we're doing these things properly, but also... Um, we're, we're, we've been investigating war crimes in this country for a while, and it's an ongoing process now. That's the reality. We, we've seen all of that. And I, I, as a former policeman, too, I like to think that we investigate, we, we should investigate things properly. Mm. Uh, if you're going to investigate something, you do it properly. If it's a criminal case, you conduct a proper criminal investigation. And um, this is international criminal law that we're applying here, right? So 
Uh, I think uh, from that perspective, this, this could be uh, of assistance to the Australian government into the future, the, the way we address these sorts of things, and also the way our commanders approach the conduct of their of their troops on the ground, right up to the highest level of command. Well, we've I think been... we've got more independence in government right now than we've ever had before. So I'm sure you might find a willing ear from an independent who might be quite keen to flag your paper, as perhaps opposed to uh, more traditional parties that may have thought otherwise. Glenn, jumping around again, The Telegraph, uh, you're now, as I understand, writing and helping with The Telegraph, sharing about military sexual assault cases, etc. Um, tell us what's happening there. Over a couple of years now, receiving, um, having clients come to us who are, are survivors of military sexual trauma, military sexual assault, and we needed to bring that to the attention of government and to enter the public more broadly, particularly in, in the context of the ongoing uh, Royal Commission, right? So, so the Telegraph launched, the, Daily, the Weekend Telegraph rather, launched this, um, this, camp, this uniform justice campaign. Every week they run, a, they run an article on one of our survivors, be it um, an anonymous or, or you know, openly discussing the, you know, the, the person. Um, they'll tell their story in the paper, the, the survivor, and then we, um, we then will make some comment about the, the legal issues and the, the policy issues, et cetera. As I say, to bring it to the attention of the public, um, it's also helped us to flag these people with the Royal Commission because all of our clients um, so far have either done written submissions or, or um, given oral testimonial both to the Royal, the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide. So um, because you know, military sexual trauma is one of these big potential triggers to you know, adverse mental health and to potential self-harm. So, so look, it's been a good campaign. It's ongoing. Again, this, this, this weekend, there's another piece running and we'll, we'll keep running these stories until... Um, to give our clients their voice for a start, but also to keep the issue on the front burner because um, the way this country has dealt with military sexual assault is, uh, is very lacking, very, very lacking. And that's become even more apparent as we hear the evidence of the senior leadership of the Royal Commission. I remember when we've had a few chats with you, but I remember one of our earlier ones, you were one of the first guys that had come back uh, from Afghanistan, Iraq, and identified all these problems that veterans were going through and there weren't lots of really run, well-run organisations that were helping them, but there's many more today. But I remember you were one of the very first guys, certainly with the pro bono stuff, and I remember you reaching out, in fact, trying to use our platform as well to sort of reach out and say, listen, I need more like-minded guys and girls. How have you gone with that? Because you seem to be doing so many things here. Look, we have an amazing team at, um, at GAP, and as I say, Dr Kay Danes is, is one of our... Um, most outstanding. Well, look, the team's amazing, all in their own in their own way. They're amazing. Dr. Kay Danes brings a lot to the table in her human rights law expertise and her military family expertise. And uh, we have people uh, like our military sexual trauma case manager, uh, Grace Tosic at GAP, is involved in every one of these military sexual trauma cases, and she she's that intermediary, that almost um, counselling voice to she'll then facilitate counselling as required and direct people off to the Royal Commission or to or to counsel, mental health counselling, et cetera. So um, we've got people internally doing this stuff. But a lot of people also came out during the Afghan crisis. A lot of ex-army ex people, ex-army intelligence officers and soldiers saying, hey, what can we do to help get our Afghan colleague, former colleagues out of Afghanistan? So, you know, when, that, when the crisis hits, the veterans seem to step up. You know, regardless of how much they're struggling themselves, they'll step up and try and 
try and help, which I think is part of the Australian character, which is which is amazing. But I think why um, you've been so very successful with all this is that, but you know, you've spent so much time in the military and you've done this when you've been deployed abroad. And I feel that when you've been deployed, which I haven't, um, so I can't speak from any authority from that perspective, unlike you, it gives you a greater depth of knowledge and, and experience, which with respect is, I fail to see how that can be easily replicated in the courtroom here. So therefore, it's wonderful that you're stepping up and helping in these spaces because they're, they're desperately needed. On another note, I wanted to thank you. You um, very kindly stepped in at Anzac Day and ran a school service at Oxley College. How did that go? It was good, I think. I tried to take a different tack to, um, I've, I've spoken at a number of schools over the years and other, other fora and um, about you know, the history of Anzac Day and sort of go through um, you know, the, you know, the original Anzacs in the trenches, et cetera. I took a bit of a different tack at that college and, um, and spoke about the reasons why Australians step up and offer themselves forward for operational service, the motivations, and uh, with a view to saying to these, these kids, so, you know, there was all, all age groups there from junior school right up to, to year 12, saying that, um, you know, Australia is, is currently trying to expect to grow our military for obvious strategic reasons. And, um, it's well, it's highly likely some of those kids will will throw on a uniform one day. So mm. I just want to sort of random through the motivations over the years um, that that various um, various generations have had to step up and serve. And look, I think it went down pretty well. I um, it's hard to hard to judge really, but um, but it was uh, I, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, it. It's always good. I think it's always good to have a voice out there at, at schools and community groups with perhaps different topics from time to time. Just uh, going going off off script a little bit, perhaps. Glenn, look, before, I mean, you and I could just talk all day, but are there any other things that you wanted to share with us before we say goodbye today? Mate, I think um, I'm just trying to keep in the, in the front of um, the general public's minds um, because with Ukraine seems to have sort of almost displaced the Afghan crisis. So I'm just trying to sort of remind the, the, the public and the veteran community that our, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, we owe our colleagues in Afghanistan a, a moral, if not legal, um, duty. So whilst Ukraine is is happening and it's it's on the front page, the Afghans have been shunted towards the back page, if at all, of the papers. And I'd just like to say, you know, keep keep Ukraine in mind, but don't don't forget about our Afghans, right? We um, there's a lot of work to do there yet, and I'm imploring government to to step up and um and you know get get our our employ our locally engaged employees visas and get them to Australia. Len Kolomitz, thank you for talking with us again today. You continue to be a great servant to this nation, which would greatly benefit from more of your like. Thanks again, Glenn. Thanks, Angus. Cheers, mate. Glenn Colomitz also appeared in the post-season two special episode, Panel, Returning Home. So Garth's quite right. The public don't know what we do. Therefore, they're, they're wrapped up in this Anzac legend, this um, bit of a myth surrounding the Australian Defence Force uh, member without seeing the facts and what's happening on the ground and what we actually do do in deployed locations. He was featured in 2018's episode, Christmas on the Line. One of the little kids went home to his mum and dad and said, uh, said, Mum or Dad, Santa is a soldier and he's in Afghanistan. And in season three, as a contributor to number 44, Mick Bainbridge. You know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. And he was featured on camera in conversation with Angus in Life After Service, Glenn Colomitz. You need to have that, um, that transition piece at least um, somewhere in the back of your mind. I, I think you, you can't really um, 
be in defence for the long haul, which I, which I was, um, not having uh, an exit strategy. It sounds negative, but not having a, a, you know, thought about what you're going to do when you do get out. Follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>